Thank you, Elise. Not going to use this today. Um, can you guys just hold that thought for one second? This is a shameless plug. You guys are used to commercials, so you can do that in your head, right? Um, so next week, uh, I'm planning on leading a beginning a discipleship workshop along with Tom Bonnenberger on ministry to the least of these. And I have been praying this week that the Lord would put it on a handful of people's hearts to be a part of this uh, workshop for the next six or seven weeks. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to say this out loud so that if you feel like, oh, I wonder if the Lord's putting it on my heart, you might be an answer to my prayers. And so please take that seriously. My prayer is that a handful of people would come and pay attention to, for a few weeks to um, really two things. I, I, our, the goal is to develop... Uh, to, to develop more of God's heart for the least of these and to know where to start in serving the least of these. And so um, this is a big deal. Those are, the least of these is a category straight out of Jesus' mouth. He gives us that category. He cares a lot about that category. Um, and it is my prayer that uh, a handful of us will feel inclined to get together, talk, pray, uh, and invest the time in um, in that workshop for the sake of, really, for the sake of, of, spreading that passion throughout our whole church, that we would grow in being a church who cares for the least of these. So um, that's the plug. Please sign up uh, today if, you, if you're interested, and uh, sign up tomorrow if you're not interested. Um, but um, if you are too busy serving the least of these to come to the workshop, please don't come. If you're not, you might want to come. All right, end of commercial. Uh, back to Matthew chapter 8. Um, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Is that right? Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness. Those are spiritual words. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I want to acknowledge from the outset that there, are, there is a lot of mystery uh, in the passage that we are looking at together today. A lot of think questions I can't answer. Um, and this is also a passage that Matthew and Mark and Luke have included in their accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. It's a big deal. They have different details according to their different um, goals and aims. Um, but this is a, this is a, uh, this is a big deal passage. Um, we're in a section as we work through Matthew of we're in a section of Matthew's gospel where he's very interested in highlighting for us the authority of Jesus, right? The Sermon on the Mount ended with the the transition statement that everyone was amazed at Jesus teaching because he was teaching as somebody who had authority, and then he jumps right into uh, showing us uh, Jesus healing a man with leprosy, healing a paralyzed man without him being in the same neighborhood. He healed many who were sick, who were oppressed by demons, and then last week he told the wind and the waves to calm down, and they did. And so we get another glimpse of Jesus' authority in the passage in front of us today. But I want to zoom out real quick before we zoom back in. The Apostle Paul wrote some things uh, in the decades following Jesus doing these things, and he um, he, he wrote some things down to give us an idea of what all this stuff that Jesus was doing really means. 
And so writing down words breathed out by God, Paul said this after speaking of Jesus' sacrificial life and sacrificial death on a cross. Philippians 2, 9-11. He says, Therefore, because of what Jesus did, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's where all of this is going. All things in subjection under Jesus' feet. All things perfectly and completely under Jesus' authority. That's not what we see yet with our eyes, as Hebrews 2.8 says, but that's where all of this is going. Every knee bowing to Jesus. Every tongue in heaven, earth, below the earth, confessing Jesus is Lord. So, that's where things are going. So when Jesus healed sick people in his ministry, that wasn't the end of sick people, right? When Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, that wasn't the end of storms. And when Jesus cast out demons, that wasn't the end of demons and the powers of darkness harassing us. But these were signs of things to come. These are indications that things will not always be this way. So let's keep that in mind as we pay attention to these incredible true stories of things that actually happened 2,000 years ago on this earth, even though these are stories that can nonetheless feel distant and hollow if all we're saying is, yeah, good for them. Yeah, but I still get sick. Yeah, but I still have storms. Yeah, but I still feel like I'm in the grip of darkness. If that's how we view these stories, they're going to feel distant and hollow. So don't just read these accounts and say, good for them. This is good for us. King Jesus is on his throne even now. And in just a little while, we're going to see all things submitted to his authority. So with that in mind, Let's pray one more time that God would use his word in our lives right now. Father, we pause to um, intentionally and consciously invite you to help us as we pay attention to your word for a few minutes. I need your help talking. My friends need your help listening. Uh, We need you to do the, the exchange that only you can do of bringing life, of planting words that grow and bear fruit. So would you eliminate distractions? Would you speak in ways that, uh, that we hear and feel? And would you um, help us behold Jesus like we just sang? We pray in his name. Amen. Okay, so the last words that Matthew gave us before moving from Jesus calming the storm to Jesus casting out demons, if your Bible's still open, please keep your Bible still open. Uh, the last words that we get in the transition between these two episodes are the words of Jesus' disciples who just witnessed his authority over the weather. Matthew 8, 27, you see it? What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? You can imagine them staring, mouths open, water dripping, hearts still racing. Who is this man? It's one thing to teach with authority, But when you start deciding the weather, it's another level. 
Jesus still surprises the disciples because they don't yet really know who he is. But that's exactly why Jesus has them in the boat. It's exactly why Jesus said, follow me and let's go to the other side. It's exactly why Matthew wrote all this down so that 2,000 years later, we in Aurora can grapple with this question, what sort of man is this? I think we're going to be asking that question for all eternity, our own mouths open, our own hearts racing, as the infinite riches of Jesus are on display for us through all eternity. Who is this man? But we're going to, we're going to hold this question in front of us today as we look at this passage, um, this memorable scene from the earthly life of Jesus. And Matthew has been very kind to us, me in particular, because Matthew tells us exactly what to pay attention to in this passage. I hope you noticed. The ESV uses the word behold, which is a Bible way of saying, check this out, pay attention to this. And Matthew uses it three times in this little passage to tell us what sort of man is this? Check this out. So Matthew tells us to behold three things when we ask the question, what sort of man is this? So we'll look at those together and then we'll finish with a little bit of personal application at the end. First thing, what sort of man is this? Matthew tells us, behold, this is the sort of man that is known and feared by demons. Read again with me, starting in verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Here's the great irony of this passage. The disciples have just watched Jesus calm a storm. Before that, heal a bunch of people. And they're still asking the question, who is this man? Then Jesus barely steps foot on dry land, and he's got these two demon-possessed men in a frenzy crying out, what are you doing here, son of God? They knew exactly who he was the second he stepped out of the boat. They clearly weren't expecting to see him just yet, but they knew him when they saw him. No miracles necessary. How's this possible? Why do the demons know more about Jesus than the disciples? Let's zoom out again. It's likely that in Jesus' three decades of life on earth up to this point, he'd never set foot on this particular shore before, never encountered these particular men before. That doesn't mean he'd never encountered these particular demons before. Listen to what Paul says in zoom-out mode, speaking of Jesus in Colossians 1.16. Paul says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible things and invisible things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. When Paul's talking about invisible thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, he's talking about powers of darkness that we can't see with our eyes. And with far fewer details than our curious minds would like, The Bible does tell us that Satan was an angel who led a rebellion against God and has maintained some degree of power over the earth and mankind since the Garden of Eden, 
along with his own band of fallen angels. Which means these demons who stormed up to Jesus on the shore that day in a panic knew exactly who he was because he was their creator. They were created by him, through him, and for him. This is the Son of God. And they had no fanciful delusions that they're on the right side of this relationship at this point. And they're freaked out. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? First of all, I think they knew exactly what the Son of God had to do with them. A lot could be said about the title Son of God, but a significant dimension of that title is the connotation of authority. Undercover boss just showed up, and the demons recognize him immediately. And they're freaking out because somehow they know where this whole thing is headed. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Already? You're early. Check this out, you guys. The powers of darkness are out in the country having the time of their lives, deviously toying with these two pitiful men, but all the while they know who's in charge. And they know their days are numbered. I don't know how much they knew, but here are some things that we know, and it sounds like word had reached their ranks as well. Later in Matthew, Jesus is talking about a future day when those who have rejected him as king will hear him say, Matthew 25, 41, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. John writes in Revelation 20.10 about the day when the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 of the day when Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. I don't know how much detail they knew, but they knew something like that was in their future. These workers of darkness knew that there's a day of reckoning coming. They just weren't ready for it to be that day. So what sort of man is Jesus? He's the sort of man who's known and feared by demons. Let's check out the next thing Matthew wants to draw our attention to. What sort of man is this? Number two, behold, Jesus is the sort of man who has absolute authority over the powers of darkness. Let's pick back up at verse 30. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Pause for a second. Mark gives us the detail that there were about 2,000 pigs in that herd. And then we get uh, another detail here that confirms Jesus is in Gentile or non-Jewish territory because Jewish people don't raise pigs. So this is... This is uh, Jewish territory, and Jesus is doing surprising things. Again, there's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot we have to infer 
or guess at because Matthew doesn't give us all the explanation that we might like. But apparently, the demons didn't want to be disembodied. They wanted to inhabit some kind of creature, and they didn't want Jesus to torment them. Luke's account, when Luke writes this story, he actually indicates that these demons pleaded with Jesus not to send them to the abyss yet, which we'd have to assume refers to that final place of judgment that we've already peeked at in Matthew 25 and Revelation 20. So they ask for pigs. Pigs are close. Send us to the pigs. And as is often the case with God in the face of rebellious creatures, he actually gives them what they want. Verse 32, he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, check this out. The whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now, if you're like me, you've got some questions. Understandable questions that unfortunately the Holy Spirit isn't terribly interested in giving us answers to in the written scriptures. But this is a bizarre scene. So bizarre, in fact, that almost every historian that studies this passage concludes that it absolutely must have happened because nobody would make this up. It's too bizarre. But most of us probably already believe it's true. We just don't get it. Why does Jesus give the demons what they ask for? Did he just free them to keep wreaking havoc on this town? What about the poor little the poor little piggies? Now, to be clear, that's not one of my questions. <laughs> I'm just leaving room for some of you hopelessly blind animal lovers out there. <laughs> but for what it's worth, Fewer answers than we'd like. Some commentators believe that Jesus did give the demons what they wanted by sending them into the pigs, but then he also tormented them and sent them to the abyss, to the place, to the waters of judgment, transported them through the pigs to the place of torment. But clearly there's a lot going on here in the spiritual realm that we're just not privy to. This passage may provoke a lot of good and important questions, but let's not let our questions get in the way of what's clearly on display here. I don't know why the powers of darkness are allowed to do all that they do, but I'm very clear on this. Jesus is absolutely in charge. What sort of man is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Check this out, Matthew says. It's not only the wind and sea, but the very powers of darkness are in complete subjection to Jesus, the Son of God. Mark and Luke include a little more dialogue between Jesus and the demons, but Matthew's emphasis is clear. It only took one word. Go. And they're gone. In the words of Martin Luther, speaking of the prince of darkness, one little word shall fell him. The devil and all the powers of darkness under his temporary, leashed-up control flee at one word from the Son of God. Like the faith-filled centurion we just heard from in Matthew 8, speaking about authority, when I say go, they go. When I say come, 
they come. Brothers and sisters, this is the kind of authority that our Lord Jesus has over our greatest enemy. Do you think we're going to be okay? Let me zoom out here one more time and engage the big picture question that some of us might wrestle with in a story like this. Maybe you're on kind of a far end asking the question, are we really supposed to believe that demons are real? Or that things like this really happen? That they possess people? You really expect us to believe that? I'm not mocking that question. It's an understandable place to wrestle when you live in a place and time like us post-enlightenment materialistic society that largely relegated the supernatural to the Marvel universe. But I'm guessing there's more of us in this room that would say, I technically believe this stuff is real. I just don't know what to do about it. I just don't come across demonized people that much, at least not that I'm aware of. I resonate a lot with that position. I grew up reading these stories in the Bible and occasionally hearing real life stories from other people about demonic encounters. But if you're like me, it's pretty easy to be skeptical of weird stories that people tell, and sometimes rightly so. And then about two years ago, the Lord saw fit to plop me right down in the middle of it and remove every doubt, though not every question. There's a friend of mine who told me that in his teenage years, he made a deal with the devil in order to um, attain the kind of life that just kept feeling just out of his reach. So then fast forward 20 years later, and this man's life was so steeped in darkness in ways that were literally destroying everything and everyone that came close to him. And it had just been growing for decades. Living among the tombs would not have been a ridiculous way to describe his life. I'd known this man my entire life. I knew that he had very little biblical knowledge or categories for things like this. And I sat there one day with him and another friend in a quiet room. And through long conversation, we confronted the powers of darkness that were ravaging my friend's life. We sat there, huddled up the three of us, and in the name of and authority of Jesus, no fewer than six demons came forward when confronted. They named themselves when we told them to tell us their names. They detailed exactly what they were sent to do in startling detail. They regurgitated the precise lies that they'd been using to inflict destruction on my friend for years. And then they surrendered their supposed rights to my friend and obeyed orders to leave immediately in the name of Jesus and never come back. And all my friend could say when that was all said and done was, wow, I didn't know they were that personal and strategic. And I agreed. Some of you may have had similar experiences at some point in your life, and some of you may have just decided that I'm crazy. But as I've reflected on that experience myself, 
I want to tell you just three quick things that I think the Lord has taught me about the realities of the spiritual warfare that we're involved in, whether we know it or not. First off is it's real. Like I said, I never disbelieved in spiritual warfare or demonic oppression. I just, I never thought the Bible was making things up. I just didn't know what to do with some of it. But then sitting there that day with my friend and having previously witnessed firsthand some of the scary, dark world that he'd been living in, and then hearing the names and marching orders and bone-chilling lies spoken matter-of-factly out of his own unknowing mouth, I saw the battle in a whole new light or a whole new dark. The kind of thing that's recorded in Matthew 8 still happens, even in America. But as a society, we've probably, in some cases, developed unhelpful, different explanations for things that ignore the spiritual world altogether. And so we're pretty clueless about it. But it's real. Second thing I learned, uh, that while this kind of demonization still does happen, it's not the primary way the enemy works. In other words, every time we sin or struggle, we shouldn't jump to the conclusion that there's demons that need to be cast out. When Jesus interacted with sinners and strugglers of various kinds, his primary message was repent, not to the pigs. The powers of darkness are most certainly at work around us all the time in all kinds of ways, as we're about to see in our third behold. But it would be unwise and unhelpful if we went around trying to cast demons out of everyone who's struggling. It's not the primary thing the enemy is doing. But he does still do it. Third thing that that experience has reinforced me is that Jesus is, in fact, in complete control of all of it. At the name of Jesus, darkness flees. It doesn't matter if you're in West Africa or Illinois or all the way out in the country of the Gadarenes. Every square inch of this earth belongs to Jesus. He is an absolute authority over all the powers of darkness that are still desperately clinging on for dear life before he sends them away forever. He's still in complete control. Let's look at the third behold, the third thing Matthew wants us to pay attention to. What sort of man is this? Number three, pay attention to this, Matthew tells us. Jesus, the Son of God, is the sort of man that some people would rather ignore. Let's pick up at verse 33. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This must have baffled Matthew, similarly to the way it might baffle us. How could a whole city hear the eyewitness account of what Jesus had just done and then come out to see with their own two eyes these two demonized men now clothed and in their right minds, as Luke uh, says in his account? How could they see for themselves the power and authority of Jesus and decide that they want nothing to do with it? And that's exactly what Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us happened that day out in the country of the Gadarenes. 
Listen, I think this is really crucial for us. I just said that demonization isn't the primary way the powers of darkness are at work around us, and this is the perfect case in point. Two men in this region were so obviously oppressed by demons that everyone else had to steer clear of them. But now we see that the entire town is so steeped in darkness that the day the Son of God visits them, they want nothing to do with him. They beg him to leave. Who's got the demon problem? It's not that they don't believe what Jesus just did. Two formerly crazed men are now sitting calmly at the feet of Jesus and 2,000 pigs are drowned in the sea. They can't deny his authority, but they're so blinded by what they truly love that it doesn't even matter. 2,000 pigs is a significant blow to their economy and a serious loss for somebody. Not to mention the, the, the bacon industry. And it's enough to convince the whole town that if this Jesus guy sticks around, nobody's safe. Listen to how Paul describes situations like this. Almost like he's pulling back the curtain and giving us a glimpse into things that we can't see, spiritual realities as they play out in real time. Here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He said, in their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Is that not what's happening? The God of this world, Satan, isn't simply going around toying with a few people here and there and confining them to the tombs. He's at work much more broadly, blinding ordinary people who are going about their ordinary lives, confining them to the tombs. He's blinding them so that when Jesus comes near, even with undeniable power, they'd rather just ignore him. Behold, brothers and sisters, many people prefer to ignore the life-altering reality of Jesus Christ and the spiritual battle that we're all engaged in. Many people would simply rather ignore it, ignore him. If you're listening to me and you're not a follower of Jesus, let the surprising response of these townspeople surprise you just for a minute. How could the power of Jesus make such a dramatic change in the lives of some And yet everyone else wants nothing to do with him. Surprising, right? And yet, are you not making the same surprising move by letting Jesus touch the lives of people around you while you keep him at arm's length? Maybe similarly afraid that he'll mess with the things that you love most? I pray that God grants you a moment of clarity to realize that it's infinitely wiser and infinitely safer to embrace rather than to ignore the one who sends demons running. 
We don't know the end of the story for those townspeople who initially begged Jesus to go away. Mark and Luke actually give us a little bit of hope to think that that wasn't the end of their story, that the ongoing testimony of these two men actually made an impact on, on the lives of some people in this region who at first wanted nothing to do with Jesus. But we can be certain of this, that no one who chooses to ignore the life-altering reality of Jesus will be able to do so forever. It's just not going to be an option. Remember where this ends. This all ends with every knee bowed, every tongue confessing Jesus is in charge. Three things that Matthew wants us to behold here that I think we would do well to pay attention to. I want to close with three brief points of application that I think we should draw from this passage, but first I want to say something that I hope is already abundantly clear. And that's that this story is about Jesus. This story is not about demons. It's not about pigs. It's not about the two men. It's not about the townspeople. And it's not about you and me. It's about Jesus. Regardless of what any of us think about this story, believe about this story, respond to this story, Matthew has put Jesus, the Son of God, in front of us in a way that's true and unchanging and consequential. All of reality and eternity is shaped in part by what we see of Jesus in this story. Doesn't matter what anyone thinks about it. But since that's the case, it's, a, it's essential that we confront ourselves before we let go of this story. Or better yet, that we let this picture of Jesus confront us before we go. So we should never walk away from God's word without asking what it has to do with us. So three quick points of application based on what we've beheld together today. First, there's apparently a way to know right and true things about Jesus and yet not be under the protection of his saving grace. The demons know that Jesus is the eternal son of God, but they refuse to submit themselves to his rule and reign. James, the brother of Jesus, says in in James 2.19 that you believe in God? Great job. Even the demons believe in God, and they shudder. And then he goes on to warn us about a demonic kind of faith that merely acknowledges true things about God, but doesn't submit our entire lives to him. James says that's a demonic kind of faith. The demons believe in God. The demons believe true things about Jesus. We would be wise to evaluate the fruit of our professed faith in Jesus, the Son of God. Does it look like more than just knowing true things about Jesus? Is your faith in the Son of God characterized by glad-hearted obedience to his will? That might be a good question to wrestle with this week. Is your faith in the Son of God characterized by glad-hearted obedience to his will, not simply a lot of knowledge about things that are true? Secondly, all the powers of darkness, though unwillingly, are under the absolute authority of Jesus. And yet, it's still possible for us as Christians to live as though we're still slaves to darkness. How can this be? If you're a Christian, the Bible says you've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. 
If you're a Christian, the Bible says that your greatest enemy has been disarmed of his power and authority over your life. You're no longer a slave to his whims. There's no area of your life that's outside of the authority and reach and power of Jesus Christ. Are there still areas of your life that you functionally are not believing Jesus can touch or redeem or transform? Many of us still wrestle with hopelessness at different times in our lives, but as long as Jesus is on the throne and he is right now, hopelessness is not a thing for a child of God. There's no such thing as hopelessness for children of God. So what area of your life do you need to freshly bring before Jesus? The one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. Third thing. We've seen that it's possible to witness the transforming power of Jesus and yet prefer to have nothing to do with him. That's possible. It happens all the time. Well, there are powers at work against us, brothers and sisters, in subtle ways. Perhaps scheming to lull us to sleep rather than terrify us through the night. Schemes perhaps meant to divide us from one another over silly things. Schemes perhaps meant to numb us to spiritual realities, to numb us by reason of our various addictions to comfort or entertainment or the never-ending pursuit of more. Schemes to tempt us people like us to replace our first love with lesser loves? How many of us would rather Jesus not interrupt our predictable, comfortable lives and loves like all those terrified townspeople in our story? So here's another question to wrestle with. Are you mindful of the subtle yet strategic schemes of the enemy aimed at you. Because it might not look like living out in the tombs, scraping yourself with rocks. But it might be just as deadly. Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 6 to put on the full armor of God because our enemy is unseen and he's active, even though he's been defeated. If any of those three categories resonates with your heart today, I want to encourage you to take up one of the weapons that Paul tells us we have to fight, to fight with, and uh, sometime in the next 10 minutes or so, make your way to the back room. There's going to be people that are going to want to pray with you. And prayer is one of the weapons that God has given us to take back enemy territory. It's one of the weapons that that God has given us to enlist the very power of God over the dark corners of our lives. And you have an opportunity to get prayed for today before you leave, so please do that. Don't miss an opportunity either uh, before you take the Lord's Supper or after the Lord's Supper while we're singing our song. If any of those categories or anything else is resonating with your heart, start fighting. Let friends fight with you. Let them lock arms with you.
brothers and sisters, we have to take seriously the reality of the unseen battle that we're engaged in. We have to take it seriously. Revelation 12, 12 says that the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows the time is short. Like those demons, he knows his days are numbered and so he's, he's flailing around desperately. He's lurking around like a lion looking for people to devour, Peter says. But until the day he is cast off forever, unable to mess with us forevermore, we must engage in the warfare. And one of the best ways we do that is what we're doing right now. Is when we gather every week and we sing defiant praise to our God, regardless of the circumstances going on in our lives. So when we sit attentively under the word of God, believing and declaring that this is the most important thing is going to come into my ears and heart this week. It's when we gather around, take the bread and the cup, celebrate the victory that Jesus won on our behalf. See, when Jesus stood before the demons that day on the shore, he was very much in charge, but he also knew that there was still a victory to win. Everyone thought that that victory was going to look more like a king slaughtering his enemies in battle, but the surprising reality of Jesus' victory is that it happened when he was slaughtered at the cross. Listen to how Paul writes about it in Colossians 2, starting in verse 14. He says, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This record of debt, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. The powers of darkness were defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. The record of debt that you had racked up was nailed to the cross. Your enemy who had a hold on you because the wages of your sin is death lost that hold that day when your bill was paid. Publicly shamed when Jesus hung there. They thought Jesus was the one being shamed. The enemy thought it was a day of victory, but on the third day, Jesus stopped being dead. And he made a public spectacle of every dark ruler and authority and demonic power under heaven. And he did it for you. He did it because he loves you. Through death, we're told, Jesus destroyed the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. And he delivered all those who through fear of death were otherwise subject to lifelong slavery. Been delivered from that. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. Because that's where our victory happened. That's where the powers of darkness were defeated once and for all. 